And when various chartists, rights groups and so on were demanding rights of the people, uh, the big boys at the time had already ruled the world for a long time in commerce and trade and banking and countries. And we're going to have none of this, this democracy stuff. They gave a sort of show of it to the public, but in reality, there was always a dominant elite behind the show running everything. They call it the establishment in London. They don't call it anything else, but the establishment, the very old families, they're stinking rich. I'll be back with more about this after these messages. the matrix. I've gone over so many times uh, this part of the system which people never talk about. When they do, they're often censored. And people like Professor Carl Quigley, who was the historian for the Council in Foreign Relations, uh, which is just an American branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, both so-called non-governmental bodies, they get massive funding from, again, the other part of their parallel government, the foundations. Like most of their books are printed by the Rockefeller Foundation. You'll see that in the second page in, in the books. And they were going to have no part of a democracy. However, uh, typical of them, they always use everything that happens to their advantage. It's like Gary Hart after 9-11 giving the speech to the Council on Foreign Relations where he said we can use this disaster to our, our advantage. Never explaining to the public what they meant by that, what, what was our advantage. That means they have some sort of goal there, and of course they do. But I've gone through the history of the CFR, Royal Institute of International Affairs, uh, Professor Carl Quigley, who was the authorized historian of that group, who, were, who was given access to their records. And he really wanted to come out and tell the public that this group had influenced the direction of the entire world for over a hundred years. And he thought it was time the public sort of knew about it. So he didn't think the public would mind because he was up in his ivory tower as a, a professor. Uh, and he was also a professor who gave a lot of advice to the State Department, different departments within the U.S., even the Pentagon. Big player. And he wrote his book, Tragedy and Hope, and also a fantastic uh, companion to it was the Anglo-American Establishment, where he fills in a lot of the blanks in history, where you just get dates in school, and tells you the whys of the wars and who fomented them, who funded them, etc. But he did go through the history of the big bankers that, that started up the Lord Alfred Milner group. They combined with the Cecil Rhodes group, both for world government and more than just world government. And he, he said that... Um, they always took everything to their advantage. Every disaster, every crisis that happened, they used it to their advantage. And what you can understand is there's an ongoing, an ongoing agenda. The capitalist bankers funded communism from the very get-go. As I say, the bankers were going to have none of this um, rights for the people stuff. And they funded communism into existence, and they kept funding it during its entire duration in Russia, in the Soviet Union. They also set uh, out many of their members to teach communism into China, to 
prepare China for their up-and-coming role, which we only now see is to be the manufacturer of the world. Designed a long, long time ago. And they play geopolitics. Geopolitics, that's long-range strategies to do with every country. We use ethnologists, uh, zoologists, all kinds of ologists, and uh, they, they basically study different types of, of, of cultures, how to use them, how to manipulate them, and so on. And often uh, they know that a particular part of their agenda might take a hundred years to pull off. That was written about by one of their members, um, uh, Bertrand Russell. He, around the same time as Lenin, said that this new system, this new ordered system, see, a planned world society, would start to take shape and be known to emerge to the public around the millennium, the year 2000 or so. They both said Lenin and Lord Bertrand Russell are supposedly on opposite sides of the camp. And you'll notice too in the last few years we've heard the term governance. That came out, that was invented again by the Royal Institute for International Affairs, the private organization that really runs Europe and a good part, and America as well, I should say, through the CFR and a good part of the rest of the world as well. They have branches in all countries. Uh, Therefore, we're getting to the end of this phase. Communism was the fastest way. Now remember, centralization of government was the most important thing for communism. Centralization. All power comes from the center. All laws are dictated from the center. And that's why Karl Marx sent a telegram to Lincoln at the end of the Civil War congratulating him on promoting the centralization and increasing the power of government. No one's ever asked why that letter, that that telegram, is in the congressional records, is, is in the library of the U.S. Congress. No one's ever asked that. And we've seen a hundred years of struggle as the feds have taken over state by state through different de- devious means uh, every state till they're all under the thumb of the, the money boys who distribute the money redistribute the money for roads and so on until they're running the whole show that's centralization of government the Soviet system was the fastest way of centralizing government kick off fund Russia and then, then Soviet Russia takes over a whole bunch of countries. It would have taken them year, 100 years or more of propaganda and infiltration and, and stealth and, and revolutions to get all those countries to go down one by one. So they used Russia, Soviet Russia, to take over those countries through simple, quick invasions, standardize them all into the same system very quickly. And lo and behold, after the set period that Lenin set up, talked about, he talked about 70 years of the dictatorship, down it came, because it was already now, with a whole bunch of countries which really were running on the same system as Britain. The civil service system was the same, the school system was the same, the whole ordered system was the same. That's, what, that's why it happened. The people that can't catch on to that, they still think it's right-wing and left-wing and right-wing and left-wing. They never think about the third group at the top, 
comprising of what they think is their own boys, capitalists and bankers. They're not yours, they never were. And as I say, now they're teaching you about global governance. Governance. Governance is different from governments. Governance is a, rule, a world ruled by experts. What you do is you're told the experts have complete and total, the word is total power. Total power. And you just obey. And in a totalitarian regime, a police state, a world police state, there's no complaints department. You do as you're told. Haven't you noticed uh, since 9-11, the whole world is going to under the same, exact same system? And now we've all to be spied on, even in our own homes, by the way, they've started off the program in Britain, just like Orwell predicted. And people still think it's a left-wing, right-wing thing. No idea. You see, the bankers would be so happy. They used to hate it when, you, when they lent out money to private individuals. I'm talking about the big, big bankers, the internationalist boys, the ones who loaned to countries. They wanted to loan to countries because if they can own the parliaments or the congress of countries, it's easy to get those same politicians to make it law that the people of the countries must pay the government back. The government passes it back to the bankers. They become the tax collectors for, for all the borrowed money. And the bankers don't have to send any money, any people out to do it. No strong men, nothing. The governments do it all for them. It's far tidier that way, isn't it? So they wanted a non-democratic system. It suits them so well. But remember, too, the Milner Group and Cecil Rhodes were set out not only to foment wars across the world through revolution, and to start off, off wars of liberation, they called them, across the world. And this London group, this London group of aristocrats and bankers, many of them had lord titles, inherited titles, or sirs, at the very least sirs. They um, set up the Young Turks and Young Italians and so on, all these young revolutionary groups to overthrow existing systems so they could bring in the same system that Britain was run under, and Britain was never, ever a democracy. The word democracy now is anathema to, to the people. I've looked at polls, I kept doing polls year after year to see how what people thought of democracy, did they vote, and so on, and every year they get less and less and less. And you see, and that's because they want it that way. That means the public are now accepting that their experts have the right to rule over them. And that they have no right really to, why bother voting? What do I know? I'm not an expert. So let the experts rule over us, you see. And remember, as I say, Cecil Rhodes wanted to take over the entire resources of the planet with the Milner Group. That's all energy, all food supplies. They wanted to get um, a standard fixed population of world population. And they wanted to set up a world parliamentary body. They started off, of course, as the League of Nations, and then it became the United Nations. They even said that eventually the, the United Nations would be responsible for getting all of the food supply of the world brought to it, to its depots, and then they would redistribute it across the planet in order to control the people not to feed the people, but to control the people. And each region, because they had all the countries marked in regions, even as early as World War II, 
They had maps out in World War II about the regions of the world that they were bringing into existence. The United Nations would dole out the food to each region, and then it would be up to the leaders of those countries to decide how many of their population they'd have to take down. And, of course, once it starts, they'll give you less every year. Say, oh, my goodness, the crop was bad this year. We've got less to hand out, so you'll have to make sure you terminate more, or at least sterilize an extra bunch. I'm not kidding you. This is real history. And guess what? They're doing it. You're living right through it and you don't know. Be back with more after this break. through the matrix, just doing a little bit of history and historical background to try and get through to those who are receptive, who haven't been completely brainwashed by the left and right-wing nonsense, and who know there's another party that runs the show. Well, who runs both parties? Money runs both parties. Those who run them own the money run both parties. Simple as that. There's nothing mysterious about it. We've seen what happens in the past when bankers decide to fleece the public. They do at least once or twice every century. They allow you to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate, then they rob you. That, that's standard banking practice by the international boys. Standard. And they never lose anything. They never lose anything. The Great Depression, they say, was put together by three men. There was Morgan and Gould and another one who decided to crash the economy of America, loot the public and all their savings and pensions, which they did, and to take, to take down a main competitor who then was forced to sell uh, this international business and oil, etc., for peanuts. So they crashed the economy of the planet and reaped massive profits. It's very easy because there's no law to stop you from doing it. You know that. There's, no, there's never been a law put up to stop this from happening again. And we saw the same thing with Mr. Soros, the front man for Rothschild, who put a half page in a British newspaper a few years ago uh, boasting of how he and two of his friends had done the same thing to Britain and how they'd manipulated the stock market, etc., crashed the British economy and it forced uh, Britain to go cap in hand to them uh, who acted on behalf of for the international bankers boasted about it nothing's been, nothing's been changed about it and we saw this latest farce as they did it again but it was more than just looting the public it was to get the next stage underway and I've gone through that that the idea of the international monetary fund was always according to, to, to Maynard Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, who set up the Bretton Woods Agreement, the first part and the second part that would take over from the first part of the system. He set it up, and he said there'd be a second part. Keynes has a second part to this agreement, which would go much, much further, but he wouldn't live to see it in his day. And he was utterly, entirely socialist, Socialism is just the same, really, as a Soviet system, collectivism, where a small hereditary elite live very high on the hog, by their own laws, and they're kept that way by the masses of the people who are flattened 
down below them, all living in the same equal squalor. That's what socialism is. And it's also a planned economy, a planned population, etc. You'll hear one of the founders of the Fabian Society on that uh, Soviet story, one of the best videos I've put out there on what really happened inside the Soviet Union. And you'll hear George Bernard Shaw talking on behalf of the Socialist International, the same group that Blair and Brown and all these characters belong to, by the way, and many in the U.S. You'll hear them saying that the people will have to come to them to justify why they should keep you alive. No kidding. That's the real system. And these guys never, ever, and I actually wonder how come they, they never came without against the big bankers. Well, you see, it's the big bankers are the boys who want this collectivist socialist system across the planet and the planned economy. They want the right to rule and own all resources. They've got it through stealth agreements with the United Nations as they make big biospheres and big parks everywhere. And then they and, and their corporations, because these banks have so many corporations, you know, to go through all the different front companies they have. And they have the rights to, to drill and to mine on these parks that no member of the public can even walk on anymore. And then another beautiful deal at the IMF, land for debt swap. They forgive your debt. That's why they do it all over the third world, and not just the third world, by the way. The more debt you get into, well, we'll take this, let's call it a park, it'll be ours, be our, our park. And no one else will have rights over it except us. This is reality. Meanwhile, everybody at the bottom still fighting over the latest bit of news. Oh, so left wing is the right wing. No. The two wings belong to the same bird, and the body of the bird is always hidden behind a shield. On Tuesday, I talked uh, a bit from a website, it's called Jeffrey Smith, he had a very good article on uh, the genetically modified food. I didn't read it all. I went into how they managed to ram that through, through stealth lies and all the rest of it, and disregarded all the medical information that come in about stomach cancers and all the rest of it. That was just irrelevant to their plan. You see, after all, depopulation is part of this, remember. And sterilization is another part. And all this stuff that Putin does both, beautifully enough. Because, you see, Monsanto is part of the bio-warfare industry. And so are all the other big companies. In fact, all the top electronic companies are also part of the bio-warfare industry. Or the, uh, the, the, the huge complexes, the multi-industrial complex, military-industrial complex. They're all part of the same thing. I can remember when it came out on the news years ago, the General Electric created the big Gatling gun that all the, the choppers were using, the plane, and, and planes and jets were using. Fired thousands of rounds a minute. General Electric, who'd have thought? Eh? I thought they made toasters. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Alan Watt, we're 
cutting through the matrix. And which we read an article uh, that I read on Tuesday, a part of the article I read on Tuesday. This is a, the latter part of it, the bottom half, from Jeffrey Smith. And it's to do with GMO foods and so on. And he went on about how it had you know, been rammed through the uh, Congress and so on. And all the, uh, the, there's no independent testing done. In fact, you're not allowed to do any independent testing on GMO without authorization by the guys who own the patents on the GMO. That's what a great deal. Food's a weapon, remember. A very powerful weapon. To be used in many ways as a weapon, too. Even just simply deprivation of food as a as weapon. We saw that in the oil for, for food scandal uh, that the United Nations was running in Iraq. But it says here, the fox guarding the chickens, if GMOs are indeed responsible for massive sickness and death, then the individual who oversaw the FDA, the Federal Drugs Administration, or the Food and Drugs Administration policy that facilitated their introduction holds a uniquely infamous role in human history. That person is Michael Taylor. He had been Monsanto's attorney before becoming policy chief at the Food and Drug Administration. Soon after that, he became Monsanto's vice president and chief lobbyist. Remember, Obama said he was going to appoint no lobbyists. All he's done is appoint lobbyists. This month, Michael Taylor became the senior advisor to the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration. He is now America's food safety czar. It says, the milkman cometh. While Taylor was at the FDA in the early 90s, he also oversaw the policy regarding Monsanto's genetically engineered bovine growth hormone, which they injected into cows to increase milk supply. The milk from injected cows has more pus, more antibiotics, more bovine growth hormone, and most importantly, more insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1. IGF-1 is a huge risk factor for common cancers, and its high levels of this drugged milk is why so many medical organizations and hospitals have taken stands against the bovine growth hormone. A former Monsanto scientist told me that when three of his Monsanto colleagues evaluated bovine growth hormone safety and discovered the elevated levels of this very hormone in the, in the milk, even they refused to drink any more milk unless it was organic and therefore untreated. Government scientists from Canada evaluated the FDA's approval of bovine growth, growth hormone and concluded it was a dangerous facade. The drug was banned in Canada as well as Europe, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, but it was approved in the U.S. while Michael, Michael Taylor was in charge. His drug milk might have caused a significant rise in U.S. cancers. Additional, additional published evidence also implicates the bovine growth hormone and the high rates of paternal twins in the U.S. Taylor also determined that milk from injected cows that did not require any special labeling. That's what they did, of course, with the GMO too. And as a gift to his future employer, Monsanto, it's great how they, they, they just bounce back and forth from the FDA back into Monsanto and, and back into the FDA again. Isn't it beautiful? It says, as a gift to his future employer, Monsanto, he wrote a white paper suggesting that if companies ever had the audacity to label their products as not using bovine growth hormone, they should also include a disclaimer stating that according to the FDA, there's no difference between milk-treated and untreated cows. That's what they did. That's basically what they did with the GMO vegetables and so on. Taylor's disclaimer is also a lie. Monsanto's own studies and the FDA scientists officially acknowledged 
differences in the drug milk. No matter, Monsanto used Taylor's white paper as a basis to successfully sue dairies that labeled their products as bovine growth hormone free. They've got all the power. Why is that? Eh? Why do the foxes have all the power? Why is that? You see, there's another organization at work here. It's not left and right. There's a, it's a top to this triangle, you see, that runs it all. And I've just mentioned earlier on who they were and what their goals were. And there's an awful lot more to this particular article, but I'll put these ones up on my website, any of these links that I mentioned tonight, and you can go in there and look at them for yourself. And save them to your... These things go missing eventually, and history's lost. Now, uh, the food bill is quite something else. There's a site called Axis of Logic, finding clarity in the 21st century. It says here... This is the, I think the date on this is uh, August the 1st, 2009. It says, Insane Food Bill 2749 passes House on second try. HR 2749, totalitarian control of our food supply. And that's a fact, it is too. A new food safety bill is on the fast track in Congress, HR 2749, the Food Safety Enhancement Act. Isn't that beautiful? Sounds wonderful and fuzzy. Of 2009, the bill needs to be stopped. H.R. 2749 gives the FDA tremendous power while significantly diminishing existing judicial restraints on actions taken by the agency. The bill would impose a one-size-fits-all regulatory scheme on small farms and local artisans or producers, and it would disproportionately impact their operations for the worse. H.R. 2749 does not address underlying causes of food safety problems such as industrial agricultural practice and the consolidation of our food supply. And boy, has it been consolidated and taken over. It has been for years. That's part of the manifesto too, you know. The industrial food system and food imports are badly in need of effective regulation, but the bill does not specifically direct regulation or resources to these areas. It says it would impose an annual registration fee of $500 on any facility. Now, see, this is how it's worded, but by these con men we call lawyers. It's so close to liars, that's not a coincidence, is it? Any facility that holds, processes, or manufactures food. Do you understand anything that, that holds food could be your fridge? Processes, that's your kitchen, etc. They want to inspect all this stuff. Says, isn't this every home in the U.S., every garden? Although farms are exempt, the agency has defined farm narrowly. What's the definition? And people making foods such as lacto-fermented vegetables, cheeses, or breads would be required to register and pay the fee, which would drive beginning and small producers out of business during difficult economic times. Well, you see, that's not why you get these fees. Fees really are a license. And when you get a license, you're now registered. Your, your, your system is owned. And the next time you don't toe the line, they take away your license, you see. And then you can't grow anymore. And we accept that strange kind of law, don't we? Oh, you can't do this anymore. We're, we're taking your license away. You can't drive or you can't have a garden or whatever else it happens to be. We accept that strange logic, don't we? Strange how that works. But we always fall for the first part and you go along and pay the fee. A license, remember, is the permission to do something that is otherwise illegal. How can paying money make something legal? Think about it. It says, 
There are laws against this corporate size destroys a lot of diet policy, aren't there? Our home bread and cheese are lacto-fermented vegetable makers who make for their own families, included in this. Well, so, so worded, so vaguely worded, you're darn right it will be. It'll empower the FDA to regulate how crops are raised and harvested. It puts the federal government right on the farm, dictating to the farmers. Well, we've had that in Canada, because the Canadian farmers and the European farmers fell for all the free tax exempt things at the beginning. They fell for it all until basically now they're getting ordered what to do from government bureaucrats. Never take anything for free. It's never free. It says the astounding control opens the door to Codex WTO good farming practices will include the elimination of organic farming by eliminating manure. It will eliminate manure, you see, and not be left with the chemicals, mandating GMO animal feed, yeah, imposing animal drugs, and ordering applications of petrochemical fertilizers and pesticides. Farmers thus will be locked not only into the industrialization of once normal and organic farms, but into the forced purchase of industry's products. There'll be slaves on the land doing the work they're ordered to do. Well, it's much like China, really, isn't it? I guess China is a model state, you know. We keep saying it to us. All the lords and these sirs, like Mr. Tickle, uh, praise China as a model state. They were supposed to follow in all of their policies. Who'd have thunk, eh? Well, I would have, because I knew it was coming an awful long time ago. But I'll put this link up, too. Have a good look at it. And here's an article here about food as a weapon, because that's what it is, even though it doesn't say that here. CNN Money, August the 6th, 2009, Detroit, on a side street in an old industrial neighborhood, a delivery man stacks a dolly at goods outside a store. Ten feet away stands another man, clad in military fatigues, combat boots, and what appears to be a flak jacket. He looks straight out of Baghdad. But this isn't Iraq, it's southeast Detroit, and he's there to guard the groceries. No kidding, eh? No pictures, he says. Put the camera down. My companion and I are on a tour of how people in the city are using urban farms to grow their own food. Speed off. In this recession-wracked town, the lack of food is a serious problem. It's a theme that comes up again and again in conversations in Detroit. There isn't a single major chain supermarket in the city forcing residents to buy food from corner stores, often less healthy and more expensive food. As the area's economy worsens, unemployment was over 16% in July. Food stamp applications and pantry visits have surged. Detroiters have responded to the crisis. Huge amounts of vacant land has led to resurgence in urban farming. Volunteers at local food pantries have also increased. All the charities are out there. But the food crunch is intensifying and spreading to people not used to dealing with hunger. As middle-class workers lose their jobs, the same folks that used to donate to soup kitchens and pantries have become their fastest-growing set of recipients. And this is no accident either. Do you think this guy, that just, I read the article, this, this character came forward to Obama when Obama was running and just put his proposal to him of how they could get rid of the, you know, all the, the urban, the urban uh, mess they have out there. And his policy is to destroy Knock all the old houses down that people are living in, mind you, because after all, you're post-industrial. You don't need them anymore. And I'm not kidding you. If you go in to see what architects have been taught for the last, oh, 15 years, and I'll put some of this up on my site next week. I'll do an article on it, in fact, do a show on it. 
architects are being told that, 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 that they're going to do this very thing. They're even designing massive machines to take down entire residential sites in urban areas. Massive machines, like something out of science fiction. Gobbles them up. Maybe this is spontaneous. This was planned years ago. This was planned when they went ahead and, and created the GATT agreements. And many years before that, when they had to do all the, all the, 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 the back and forth with bureaucrats to countries to get agreements all ready, it took them years to set that up. They knew that then, that they were going to bring you into a post-industrial era. They knew they were going to set up China to be the manufacturer for the planet, and they also knew they were going to take your cars off the road. You don't need cars to get to work if you don't have any work outside in factories, do you? And that is what the architects have actually been taught they're building and planning for a car-free world. Guess what that is? Agenda 21. The agenda for the 21st century. Have a look at it at the United Nations website. All planned a long, long time ago. And you think things just happen day by day. And you vote the right and then they're bad. You vote the left and then they're bad. And you keep voting one or the other back in. And they just keep screwing up. They don't. There are no screw-ups at that level. No, none at all. And things are getting bad. Things are getting bad, and they have to get a lot worse. And literally, the architects have been told that everyone is to be crowded into another UN term and invention, super cities. In fact, about 10 years ago, it was the United Nations advised the setting up of what they called super cities. First, the amalgamation of all small cities around the main ones, and then the gradually the, the, the destroying of the urban areas around them, putting up taller and taller and taller buildings until we're all living on top of each other. That's the future they have planned for the masses, that is. They have special ones set aside for the bureaucrats. And they'll have their dash hours in the country, just like the, the Russians, the Politburo did, their little retreats and beautiful log homes and stuff, and servants and all that stuff. Only, only and these uh, ones for Americas, etc., they'll have, um, apart from their servants and their butlers and their maids and their big feasts, where they eat lots of meat, by the way, and lots of courses, and belch off a lot of gases. And they also have massive solar farms and all that kind of stuff to keep them going. Height of luxury. But that's the future. That's the future, and guess what? It's already planned, and it's got nothing to do with any input from you or I. At all. <laughs> Not at all. And I'll go to the callers now, and there's Gabriel from California there. Is you there, Gabriel? Hello? No? Okay. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll keep going on as I say, but that's, that's where the food comes in. Food is a weapon. Food is power. It's been said at the Ministry of Agriculture at the United Nations that food has always been used as a weapon. We saw them doing that in Iraq. In fact, remember Madeleine Albright, when they put an embargo means they starve you to death, by the way. When the UN advises an embargo, they mean they starve a people to death. And it's going to happen once again. Madeleine Albright, by the way, has been appointed to a new back branch of NATO, and I guarantee you you'll see Iran and a bunch of other countries getting starved to death very shortly. She said it was well worth it when she was said half a million folk were starved to death. That was in the early days. It rose to over a million. These are the monsters are in charge. Now, I think Gabriel's back. Are you there, Gabriel? Yes. Yes, go ahead. Hey, um, Alan, love your show. Donate money as soon as I can get some, man. But... um. 
The thing I wanted to um, find out is if anybody out there, if you could actually research this. I, years ago, I was watching um, something on, uh, I think it was BBC, I'm pretty sure it was BBC, where they had the second guy in charge under Milosevic, I don't remember what his name was, during the Bosnian conflict. Yeah. And he was being interviewed, um, it wasn't Walter Cronkite, it was a British, famous British um, anchorman or whatever, a reporter. Mm-hmm. And he had straight out came out and said, the gentleman that was second in charge of Milosevic, that pretty much um, he takes his orders from the Queen of England. Mm-hmm. He flat out said it right there on, on, I can't find it anywhere. And I was shocked and amazed by that. And I tried to call BBC and try to get a copy of it. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't have a copy of it, et cetera. But then the, um, the journalist pretty much was like, was, the conversation went like this, pretty much like, um, who do you get your orders from or who do you take your orders from? And he was like the Queen of England. And he was like, well, we don't have to get into that. That's exactly what the journalist said. And then they kind of just brushed right alongside it. And this was That's like right. during the Bosnian conflict. It was like right there. Oh, yes. And not only that, um, if you can think back, when Margaret Thatcher uh, brought uh, Gorbachev into Britain, uh, he was the president of still the Soviet Union. And the media went into action, and uh, they talked about his $5,000 suit. He was a new kind of communist, a trendy communist. And they gave him this big build-up, a different persona. And uh, everywhere he went was in Maggie Thatcher's arm. And I said, what's going on here? Uh, then, of course, she brought him across to the U.S., and they did the same build-up, Gorbachev and his wife. They, they, his wife went on TV, talked about lipstick, makeup, and how she get everything in, in the Soviet Union, including a facelift. You just walk into a clinic off the street. It was years after they said that the, the media had agreed not to ask any political questions whatsoever. Now, hang on, and I'll come back on that after this break. mentioning uh, this odd connection of the Soviet uh, system and royalty of Britain. It's not just a royalty, it's also the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which is a royally chartered non-governmental organization that doesn't play politics. They tell you that they don't play politics because they make a world agenda. But when they brought uh, Gorbachev across on Maggie Thatcher's arm, when he was still the head of uh, the president of of the Soviet Union, the media agreed, didn't tell any of the public at the time, never to ask anything about politics whatsoever. And meanwhile, the media went in, typical Madison Avenue style, created him a personality cult around him, the same way as it did with Obama. Then it did polls after it in the U.S. and in Britain, and said if Gorbachev was running in your countries, would you vote for him? Seventy percent of the public, after this barrage of personality cult nonsense, said, yeah, they would. Mm-hmm. That's how easy it is to, to, to con the public, you know, so simple. And, it, it, and they don't even know it's been done. And yet it took four or five years later, then the press admitted, yeah, they, they'd agreed never to ask any political questions at all. <laughs> hey, Alan, I had a quick question, too, real yeah. quick. Um, I know a couple of um, Masons or whatever, but most specifically Prince Hall. I know a couple of brothers who are that. When you're swearing an oath in that, are you swearing an oath to Lucifer in your first, second, third degrees or whatever? Yes, uh, Pike makes it plain in morals and dogma. And uh, morals, he says, he said, make no mistake, our, our God is Lucifer. He says that quite plainly in his own book. That's the, that was the Bible of Freemasonry. The modern one is called the Bridge to Light. 
is, is kind of watered down tremendously. And even say at the start of it, it's because the public education is so poor now that people can't think or read so deeply as morals and dogma. But however, morals and dogma still is a supreme one, and that's what they go by. Um, Pike also said it's not necessary that you understand the symbols. Remember, names are a symbol as, as well. It's, the candidate doesn't have to understand the symbols. It's only important that he thinks he understands what the symbols are. Yeah. So, of course it is. And Lucifer, to them, is the, the, the archangel of revolution and light, intellect, pure light. But it has no human emotion. And that's the eternal war of the two parts of the brain, the two parts of humanity, the psychopath and those who have humane feelings. Uh, early Christianity used to put the serpent around the cross as Jesus went up and ascended to heaven. And so Freemason is really just Rosicrucianism, really? It's Rosicrucianism. Uh, there's no doubt. Rosicrucianism, Masonry, Rosicrucianism, um, Cathars, and so on, are all terms used at different ages for the same movement. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you, And, and it truly does believe in uh, special selective breeding, uh, superior types. Uh, the higher Masons, third generation especially, can go right up the grades very quickly beyond the, the regular um, amount of degrees and the higher the real grades. And you're introduced to your, your wife, who's also raised in a, in a Masonic household and taught by a, a local Grand Master, according to Rosicrucians, owns their own books. I have them all here. Yeah, I've talked to some Rosicrucians before, and I got some ideas. Their idea of like good and evil is kind of like you can't have one without the other. They're kind of the yeah, same thing on two different ends of the spectrum. They're the same thing on the Kabbalism. same plate or something kind yeah, of mentality. It's pure, it's pure Kabbalism, but they'll always tell you, and even this is taught in science because Kabbalism's in science too. They tell you there's no such thing as good and evil. Something always benefits. So you always look to see what benefits. And yeah. therefore, if it, something benefits, it was, you can only say it was good, regardless if you kill billions of people, if a few benefit, uh, you must sacrifice the few to save the many, etc. These are all terms that come out of the Kabbalah. Yeah. Thank you, Alan. I really appreciate your time, man. Thanks for calling. And remember to tune in to Roly James tonight. You'll see the link on my website. I'm on in one hour there. From Ontario, Canada, from Hamish, myself, this good night. I mean, your God or your gods go with you.